Yeah, we can. It has been one of the joys of my life uh, to be able to partner with Ostrom, and we're just so thankful uh, for your generosity uh, that is allowing him to not only uh, be faithful in ministering to his community, but uh, he's resourcing and helping many uh families who feel called to plant churches in hard-to-reach places, hard-to-get-to places where there's little knowledge of Jesus and God is uh, growing the kingdom. And so we're so thankful for that. And I would encourage you uh, at our town hall in a few weeks, you'll be hearing more about uh, Pastor Justin and Grant's uh, recent trip and what our plans are as we move forward. Uh, You can grab your Bible and open it to Mark chapter 14. Uh, We'll be reading verse 43 through 52 this morning. Uh, This section of scripture walks through the arrest of Jesus, and having already taken a close look at Judas and at Peter, I was tempted to just kind of throw these verses into another sermon, but I do think when we hear this account, or maybe one similar to it, those of us who are sincere about wanting to be right with God and live for God hear it and think, you know, I don't want to be Judas, or I want to understand how Peter got it wrong so that I can be faithful. And so I think there's value in hanging out here, uh, especially since all the gospel writers saw fit to include this in what they wrote. So we'll walk through this text and the uh, other accounts uh, from the other gospels, and we'll then come back to some points of application for us that will maybe seem independent, but I really do believe they weave together. And I think we will leave challenged to further place our trust in Christ. Or maybe you will leave thinking, At no point in my rambling, incoherent response was I even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought and that everyone in the room will be dumber for having listened to me and that you award me zero points and may God have mercy on my soul. Um, We'll give it a shot either way. So if you look back to verse uh, verse 10 and 11 in this chapter, you have context for what's taking place in our text today. Verse 10 of Mark chapter 14 says, then Judas Iscariot, who is one of the 12, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. Today's text deals with that opportunity. After praying in the garden, Jesus wakes up the disciples and tells them that the hour has come for him to be betrayed. And Mark chapter 14, verse 43 says, and immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priest and the scribes. And the elders. So Judas and a big group show up to arrest Jesus. Judas knew he would find Jesus there. John records that Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas either knew this is one of the places that Jesus would likely be, or Judas actually had been informed that Jesus was going to be there at the Last Supper, and Judas slipped out from the Last Supper after realizing this was the opportune time. In this crowd with Judas are the chief priests. Those are those priests who had rank among the priesthood and who helped lead Israel. They're also the scribes. These were the experts in the law who taught the law and helped Israel understand how the law should be taught. And there were elders. This is deriving from Old Testament separation into tribes. They're older men from the different tribes who helped rule Israel. Each of these groups were represented in the Sanhedrin, which was the highest Jewish political body. And this group coming with Judas consisted of some members of the Sanhedrin. 
Roman soldiers were also with them. They had been assigned to this group by the governor, Pontius Pilate, for security of the temple and security of the temple leaders. And so they were with Judas and the scribes and the elders and the chief priests as they approached Jesus that night. And as we have seen in our walk through Mark's gospel, specifically chapter 14, and you probably even know if you haven't been with us lately, Judas had agreed to hand Jesus over to this crowd for 30 pieces of silver. Verse 44 says, Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Now, Judas is clearly worried about what Jesus might be able to do. He gives the instruction, lead Jesus away under guard. So he's saying, hey, you know, make sure you're not letting him out of your sight. Make sure there are those with weapons around Jesus. He had seen the power of Jesus. Judas then identifies Jesus from among the disciples with a kiss. A kiss was a common greeting in Eastern culture of that day. But kissing a rabbi on the hand was a sign of greeting to that rabbi and respect to that rabbi. Jesus would say to him, Luke tells us, Judas, would you betray the son of man with a kiss? Judas used this sign of respect to betray Jesus. This will be one of our points of application today, which we will come back to. Jesus, by this point in his earthly life, had become very in tune with the plan of God and the heart of men, and he knew what Judas was doing. Now, it's unclear if he said this before or after Judas kissed him, but Matthew says that Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Now, when he calls him friend, he uses the word, or the the writer uses the word, hetaeros, which is not the same word that you would use to, to refer to a close friend. It's not the same closeness, so I think there's a distancing here between Jesus and Judas. And after Judas kisses him, Mark tells us in verse 46, they laid hands on him and seized him. They captured him. And Luke tells us in Luke chapter 22, verse 49, then when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? The situation had escalated greatly, and they were afraid for what might happen. And they sought to fight to stop them from arresting Jesus, and they sought to fight for their cause. And they asked, shall we strike these men with the sword? But one of them doesn't wait for an answer. Mark tells us in verse 47, but one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. John tells us that it was Peter who did this, which if you've been following along, you would expect that's who it would be. And John tells us he cuts off the right ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest. Most scholars say that Peter was probably aiming for his neck. Now, I'm not sure how long this went on, but Jesus seems to quickly put a stop to it. Luke says that Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Matthew says that Jesus says to Peter, Matthew chapter 26, verse 52 through 54, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Jesus tells Peter and assumedly some of the other disciples, this is not your fight to fight. 
If I wanted to win, I could ask God to send more than 72,000 angels to take care of these people. There could be some symbolic value in that number, 72,000, but it probably just points to the enormous resources at Jesus' disposal. There's a battle taking place in 2 Kings chapter 6, and Elijah asked for one of the men's eyes to be opened so that he can see that there are thousands of heavenly horses and chariots all around Elijah, demonstrating that God was with him in this battle. This is what Jesus is trying to get the disciples to see. It's not a matter of capability. It's a matter of God's will. God has authority. God could intervene and win, but there is a plan to be accomplished. The scriptures are to be fulfilled. That word fulfilled means to be realized. There's a lot that could be said here, and I will say a lot in another application point in just a few moments. After Jesus stops the disciples, he confronts the religious leaders. Verse 48 says, Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Jesus says, have you come out as a, against a robber? Now this word in our Bibles is translated as robber or thief, but what Jesus is referring to here is actually a political rebel who would lead a, a, an insurgents and who would you know, try to come with weapons and steal from the establishment. And Jesus says, am I leading a rebellion in such a way? Have I been some threat to you that you came to me with swords and with clubs? I mean, Jesus had been more of a philosopher if you're gonna use uh, what his approach was like in this day. And then he points out something else about their seizing of him, verse 49. Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. Jesus calls out their approach here. Their tactic was to do this in the dark. You could have arrested me in the temple when I was doing what you say I did that was wrong, but you didn't do it then. And Luke says that Jesus really explains why, Luke twenty-two fifty-three. when I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Your agenda could not be upheld in the light. There were too many there who would have seen the truth of what I was doing and would have had a problem with you seizing me. At the beginning of this chapter, Mark said that they were looking at how they might arrest Jesus, but they knew they could not do it during the celebration of the feast because there would be an uproar. So they had to move about in darkness. This was their hour, and the source of their power was darkness. And this will be an application point as well. Jesus is arrested by Judas, who betrayed him, and the religious leaders who are threatened by him. But this does not surprise God. And Jesus here keeps referring to the fulfillment of the scriptures, as he now understands that God knew that this would happen. And he even knew that the disciples would flee, and they do. Verse 50 says, and they all left him and fled. Matthew clarifies that this they is the disciples. Two weeks ago, we saw that Jesus said, you will fall away because of me tonight. And here we see this happening. And before we get to the application of this text, I just, I just have to mention that Mark includes something here that is not written in the other gospels. Verse 51 and 52 says, and a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And when I read the Bible, I like to kind of visualize what's taking place. And 
To me, this is just a funny sight. You have this young man, he's sleeping in his linen cloth, it's like their inner clothing, and he didn't have time to put his cloak on because all the, you know, chaos that was happening, and so as he tried to run away, they grabbed him, and he slipped out of his linen cloth, and he runs away naked. Um, there's a lot of theories on why this is included here. What I think is that this was Mark, and he's referring to what happened to himself here, but he doesn't say it was me, he just says, oh yeah, and there was this naked guy running around. I don't think I really need to exegete those verses any further, but they're there, so we should make mention of them. I do think, though, there are some applications for us from this text, and I wanna turn our attention to them. The first thing for you and I is this. Don't use Jesus to get what you want from him. Don't use Jesus to get what you want from him. In verse 48 of Luke chapter 22, it says that Jesus said to Judas, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Now, we looked in depth at how Judas could betray Jesus a few weeks ago, so I'm not gonna dive fully into that. But something we see from the life of Judas is that we can be doing a lot of the things that God wants us to do and still have hearts that betray Jesus. Now, that should put the antenna up for all of us who have a sincere awareness of who we are, and we should wonder, can I do that? Could that be me? And the last part of that sermon on Judas from a few weeks ago was looking at the question, is it I? When Jesus tells the disciples, one of you is going to betray me, the disciples say, is it me? And if, if you were here, you might recall that I said, betraying Jesus is about submitting to something else as master when God isn't giving us what we expected. Betraying Jesus is about submitting to something else as master when God isn't giving us what we expected. And again, I walked into that in the sermon from a few weeks ago, and I would encourage you to go back and listen to that. But the point I wanna make today is that here we see Judas do a lot of things in his life that show respect to Jesus, which is ultimately illustrated in him kissing Jesus, which is a sign to show respect to a rabbi, which in actuality was his way of identifying Jesus to those who wanted to capture him so that he could get 30 pieces of silver. I just want you to understand that especially in the Bible Belt, in a conservative area, in a town like Niceville, you can take this thing or these things that are supposed to be about honoring Jesus and really just be doing it because you want 30 pieces of silver. Like a lot of people approach baptism in this way. Baptism is the symbol that we are sinners and we deserve death and so we die to ourselves buried with Christ in baptism, and are given a new life in Christ Jesus. This utter dependence on him for life. But I meet many people who seem to live however they want, and when you have questions about where they stand with God, they said, yeah, I was baptized when I was a kid, so I'm good. And so they've taken this very thing to say, that means I completely depend on God to say I don't have to depend on God anymore because I did this thing one time. 
or this happened to me when I was younger. I would also say at weddings, a lot of people want to include a pastor or they want to get married in the church because if they get married in the church or they include, you know, the man of God, then God will be with them, but then they really have no concern after they walk down that aisle with what kind of spouse, what kind of husband, what kind of wife God wants them to be. And so they're taking this thing that is meant to honor God and they're really using it to justify just living how they want. A lot of people approach giving in such a way. You know, the older generation, I think it's, I'm gonna give 10%. Younger generations, I'm gonna give some. And now I can do what I wanna do with the rest of it. When God owns everything. And we're to be stewards of everything God gives us and to use everything we have in a way that would bring honor and glory to him. I think people even approach Bible study in such a way, which is meant to learn who God is and to obey him. And we think, I study the Bible, I read the Bible, and so since I do that, I can just kind of function how I feel and how I think constantly. And I think even people approach the Bible and Bible study not thinking I need to learn what God would have for me, but using the Bible to justify how I want to live. And a lot of people say the Bible is boring, and I think a big reason they say the Bible is boring is because they're trying to use the Bible for justification, do what they want, and anything that says you need to change is boring to us. And then prayer. A lot of people pray in this mechanical, robotic, quick way, almost to say, okay, we've acknowledged God, now we can do what we want, he better bless us. And you can see we do these things sometimes in a way that we're really trying to get something from God and we're not asking what does God want from us. And I may be oversimplifying this, but I really don't think I am. This is betrayal of Jesus. Taking this thing that is meant to honor him and using it just to live how we want to live. And I want you to consider Jesus' words about what it means to follow him, what it means to be a Christian. Found in Luke chapter 9, Verse 23 through 25. In Luke 9, 23 through 25, Jesus says, And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Jesus says, if we really want life, we've got to lose our life. We've got to deny ourselves. We've got to take up our cross. So we have to identify with Jesus and obey him to whatever he's called us to and follow him. And if we're just seeking to save our lives, as religious as we might be, we'll lose our life. But I want you to notice what Jesus is saying here. Because I said, you know, betraying Jesus is about using him for what we want. What Jesus is actually saying here is not that following Jesus and what you want are at odds. He's saying that God, what God wants for you is what you will really create, what you were really created to want. And when we begin to deny ourselves, and we begin to take up our cross and we follow Jesus, 
we begin to understand what we were really created to enjoy, what happiness really is, what peace really is, and it is far greater than something we think we can offer ourselves. And that's the call to deny ourselves because what God has for us is better. The second thing that I think matters for us this morning is this. Beware of those who operate in the dark. Now, some of you have military careers or had a military career, and this is language that was used about your job operating in the dark, and that is not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about individuals personally operating in the dark. I, I would suggest that much of what the military does in that regard, the tactics that the military has, is because there are individuals who operate in the dark for evil. But we know that those extreme examples are not the only place we see evil. We see it in the chairs in church and in neighborhoods and in schools. Jesus said to the crowd, excuse to this crowd in Luke chapter 22, when I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. He says, your hour is not when truth can be heard and understood clearly. It's when you can seize me simply because you, that's what you want to do. And the power of darkness here is doing things when you can hide all of the truth. And that's the MO of these religious leaders in Jesus' day. Jesus would say of this crowd in Luke chapter 12, verse 1 through 3, in the meantime, it says, when so many thousands of people had gathered together, that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Jesus is saying the Pharisees are portraying to be one way, but in actuality, that is not who they are. And he says, beware of this way of living, because that will be found out. And so you might be a liar, and you might be able to get away with a lot by lying. You might be a person who constantly gossips behind people's backs and flatters them to their face, being deceptive. You might be someone who puts on an act in public, but in private, your heart is totally consumed with yourself. You might be someone who tries to get people alone so that you have power and you can get them to do things that you want to do. And the justice of God will rain down like a mighty river on all of this one day. But the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees weren't really concerned with what is justice, what is truth, or what God has to say. Listen to this warning here. Not because they didn't know justice. Not because they didn't know truth. Not because they didn't know what God had to say. But because their agenda blinded them to justice and blinded them to truth and blinded them to what God has to say. J. Vernon McGee said that if these people had believed their own scriptures, they might have hesitated or even changed their minds. If they believed the scriptures that they knew so well and that they taught other people to live according to, if they believed those scriptures, they might have hesitated for a moment or even changed their minds in doing what they thought they would do. 
And while people believed in Jesus and that would bring about a transformation of this world that has impacted us 2,000 years later, there is often talk by critics of Christianity about how devout religious people rejected Jesus. And, and because of that, shouldn't we question whether or not Jesus was really the Messiah? But if you're familiar with the Bible, you know that throughout Jesus's ministry, he calls attention to the fact that the religious crowd misses the scriptures. He says, you neglect the heavier matters of the law. He says to them, I desire mercy and sacrifice. Go and what that means. And he constantly points them to the Old Testament and how they're missing the fulfillment of the Old Testament. But again, they are not ultimately in submission to God's will. And even if they're pretending to do that, they're operating in the dark. They're not ultimately saying, what does God want? And that leads me to my last application point and the one I want to spend the most time on. And that is this. For all of us, be confident in the authority of God. Be confident in the authority of God. In Matthew's gospel, it said, we read it just a moment ago, Jesus said to them, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so, now this in, is not in any way teaching about war or about military. This is talking about a personal reaction. It's also not a call to pacifism. Notice, most of the disciples were carrying swords for protection as instructed by Jesus. Some people want to pretend like Jesus never said that or wasn't okay with that, but that's the real Jesus. But here, what Jesus is saying is not an avoid to call, to, uh, call to avoid protection. It's a call to avoid retaliation. And we know, because we looked at Peter's life, that something wasn't quite calibrated correctly. Peter was willing to die for Jesus' kingdom, but then he denied Jesus when Jesus was arrested. Jesus had been explaining that this was going to happen according to Scripture, and he clarifies this in this text as well. This is not a battle to fight. Let the scriptures be fulfilled. And I'll just say to some of you, it's not always a battle to fight. Sometimes the clear call on your life in that situation is to wait and to trust in God and to embrace a life with that kind of confidence in the authority of God. There are a few things that we need to grasp. And I think it's important to grasp these because not getting this is really practically why Judas did what he did and why Peter struggled the way that he struggled. And so the first thing I would say is this. An earthly definition of good is not always God's will. An earthly definition of good is not always God's will. I'm just gonna take this at the most blaringly obvious example of this. Jesus was God in the flesh and he died on the cross. That is not earthly good. I know that we're 2,000 years removed and we're so familiar with the fact that Christ came and died on the cross, but no one would have thought that God would send his own flesh into the world or he sent himself in the world to take on flesh, and that he would then be killed by the religious leaders and the political leaders. That is not 
earthly good. Seemingly, that is not good. And you see, there is this tension for us when what is good and what is God's will conflict with when what we think is good based on our maybe very good understanding of what good is and what God's will is when they conflict there's this tension for us I think there's like two levels of this the first level would be when we just don't get our way like when the political candidate we don't want to win wins and people get a little worked up about that kind of stuff or when we just don't have the kind of money we want to have or the fact that coach didn't put you in and so your team didn't win state and you're still hanging on to that 20 years later. So there, there's that level, but, but also there's this tension with this when we have real deep pain. When we have a physical or mental or emotional struggle and it just won't go away for a long time. Maybe feels like ever. Or when we lose someone. Or someone we love is wrecking their life. Or, and I would say probably the most real, is when there is injustice to us or even the injustice we see around us. And what I have come to realize is this is probably one of the biggest reasons, if not the biggest reason, that people who are actually kind of seeking truth struggle to trust God and believe in God, and specifically the God of the Bible. In his book, The Miracle of Theism, J.L. Mackey writes, if a good and powerful God exists, he would not allow pointless evil, but because there is much unjustifiable pointless evil in the world, the traditional good and powerful God could not exist. So what Mackey is saying is I think what a lot of people feel that how could God exist if he allows all this evil we see around us to exist? Specifically, how could the God of the Bible exist? And maybe here this morning, that is something you are struggling with. Maybe you're watching online and you might claim Christianity, but the truth is you've never been all in because you can't figure out how God could allow what he allows to happen if he really is good. But what I would say to you is that, that instantly there's a problem with that line of thinking. C.S. Lewis articulates it well in the book Mere Christianity when he says, consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. If the whole universe had no meaning, we should never have found out that it has no meaning. Just as if there was no light in the universe and therefore no creatures with eyes, we should never know it was dark. Dark would be a word without meaning. You see, the fact that you have a problem with injustice and the way this world works leads us to the existence of God. I would put it like this. Our sense of injustice points us to a divine law. How do we know that this is evil? How do we know that this is wrong? There is the sense in all of us that there is good and bad. That there is 
right and wrong, that there is evil. And we might debate on where the lines of that are, but there is this sense in every person who has ever walked the earth that there is good and evil, right and wrong. Our sense of injustice points us to a divine law, and our sense of suffering points us to a divine life. How do we know that this is pain? How do we know that this is not good? I had his permission. I've had the privilege of spending some time with my brother, Rich Byrne, whose wife, Nellie, just went to be with the Lord, and he lived a good life with her. But he's hurting. His wife of 55 years has passed from this earth. And, and I said to him as we're thinking on it, we're not created for death. We're not created for sickness. We're not created for injustice. And our feeling that there is something better, that there is something more, that this is not what is good, points us to a God who wants us to know him and wants us to know what he wants for us. And what I would say to you is that believing otherwise creates a greater problem for you. Because, and I say this, and it's gonna sound harsh no matter what I say, but what existential thought says to you when you lose a child is stop feeling that because feelings aren't real. And what natural selection says is, sorry, they just weren't strong enough. This does not give us any answer to this feeling that we have that this is evil or that this hurts, that there is something better. But if there is no divine law, then how can we say that anything is unjust? And if there is no idea of heaven, then how can we say that we feel a longing for something better? And rejecting God because of the injustice we see in the world or that we have experienced or because of the pain that we see in the world or the pain that we have experienced, getting rid of our belief in God doesn't help us at all. And so you might be here and you might be trying to make sense of all this and what you've been through. And I just want to encourage you to look to three places. First, step back and look at why God created this world and what the big picture is. God created for good. God created for good. He created so that we would walk with him and know him, that he would have a people called by his name to share in his glory for all of eternity. But we're not God, and so by him creating us, we are not perfect in nature, we are not holy in nature, we sin. And the consequences of sin are, are on this earth. But God is ending this Age. God is ending this world. It is temporary, and yet the consequences of that sin are death, are sickness. This, this is the why. This is the why we are in the world that we're in because of what God has in store for us that was worth creating us so that we could experience him for all of eternity. The second place I ask you to look is at yourself and realize that our issue is not the why. It is the exactly why. Our issue is really not why, it's the exactly why. Because we get that people have a choice and that that leads to bad things, directly or indirectly. We do get that life is temporary. Every, everyone passes, we know these things. But when specific bad things happen, 
and we don't know exactly why, we struggle. And what I would suggest to you is just because we don't see a good reason for something doesn't mean that there isn't a good reason. And be careful because even in our struggle and even in our pain, pride can creep in and we can think, if I don't know the exactly why, I am not satisfied and we're just not that great to have that perspective and that understanding. And we can theorize and we can obsess and we can drive ourselves mad and we may never know exactly why it went the way it went. But if we're looking for answers and we look to Jesus, what do we see? Well, we don't have all the answers, but here's what we see. The answer is not that God is absent from our suffering. The answer is not that God is absent from our suffering. The answer is not that God said, hey, it's worth it, endure the suffering, we'll be together eventually. God saw that heaven was worth the suffering so much that he suffered for it. Tim Keller says, when we look at the cross, we still don't know what the answer is. However, we now know what the answer isn't. It can't be that he doesn't love us. It can't be that he is indifferent or detached from our condition. You see, when we look to Jesus, we look to the cross. And the cross gives us love. It shows us that a holy God Jesus, who committed no sin, suffered the wrath of God that should be poured out on the sins of all of us for us, for what God's story is, for what God has in store. The cross gives us love. And when we look to Jesus, we don't just look to the cross, we look to the empty grave. And the empty grave gives us hope. When we look to the empty grave, we know that there is hope for things to be restored, for things to be made right one day. I, I want to read from Hebrews, and I'm going to turn there because there's just something, when you read the words, no offense to you phone people, but when you read the words in the Bible, the Bible tells us this concept that Jesus is a high priest. Hebrews 7 verse 15 says, this becomes even more evident when another priest arrives arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. What that means is Melchizedek was this high priest before the law was ever given. So he wasn't a high priest because of the law. He was a high priest who helped Abraham offer up a sacrifice to God because God had made him a high priest. And Jesus is not a high priest according to the law. He's a high priest because he's God. And look at what verse 16 says who has become a high priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Here's why Jesus can go to the Father for you, interceding for you and make you right with God and make you an heir to the day when there will be no sickness and there will be no pain and there will be no death 
not because he met some standards of the law, but because he can't be destroyed because he is God and he is triumphant over everything that we would go through, even death. This is why Jesus said in John 16, that I've said these things to you that you might have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Today, you might be searching for meaning and truth and hope, and I cannot give you all the answers, but I can give you the answer. And that is that in the cross of Christ, we see that God loves us so much that he would suffer for us so that we could be with him for all of eternity. And in the empty grave, we know that that promise is assured. And you might be struggling this morning. You might be struggling with something you've been going through for years and years and years. I can't give you all the answers. But here's what I know. The afflictions of this world will not be worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us in heaven. And you might think, all I know is the cross. What else is there to know? And I would just tell you, cling to the cross and cling to the empty grave and let it sustain you. Let's pray together. Lord, as we just come now to worship, I pray that's what we do. Worship is acknowledging your power and our need. And I know that looks different in different ways this morning, but Lord, and we just acknowledge our need for you right now. And may we respond not just by singing and worship, but with lives that worship, clinging to the cross empty grave of Jesus Christ. I pray these things in his name.